Thanks, Phil and the team, and let me also uh, echo Jones. Welcome to you. Great to have second last in spite for the year. I can't believe how quickly the year's going. I think it's 60 days till Christmas. Is that right? Just to let you remind you, get do some shopping or something. I did mention last time I had planned to have the Northside Christian College Choir come either today or in two weeks' time. We're talking to Adele King from Northside. Unfortunately, the days just don't work at the moment for them, so they're going to come term one next year. So we look forward to that, which means on November the 9th, I'll present another uh, message from Isaiah, which will wrap up our series from Isaiah. So that's where we're headed. And then, of course, looking forward so much to November 30. What an amazing day that's going to be. So this morning, reading from Isaiah 52 through to Isaiah 53, verse 12. If there's any chapter in Isaiah that perhaps we know the best, I would say it's probably Isaiah 53. And preparing for this message this morning in these last few days, the thing that amazed me, as of course, is what we'll see is how much, how much Isaiah spoke about Jesus, who was still to come in 800 years' time, and the detail that Isaiah, of course, given to the words given to him by the Lord, the detail that Isaiah goes into that I just can't think that anybody could read Isaiah 53 without thinking about Jesus. That's where we're at. So Isaiah 52, verse 13 through to 53 to the end of the chapter. See, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be very high. Just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of mortals. So he shall startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which had not been told them they shall see and that which they had not heard they shall contemplate. 53. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days." 
Through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish he shall see light. He shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make my many righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Don't know whether you have a dog or whether you've had a dog, but there's one common thing about having a dog, and that is it always seems to be hungry. In my family, we had Labradors. So I think we had about seven Labradors during my time. One would pass away and then we'd get another one. And dogs are always hungry. We would go to sit, under, sit at the dining room table for a meal and the dog would squeeze in between our legs and make sure that it was seated right under the table looking around for any little bit of morsel that would fall off the table. Here's a picture, I love this next picture of the dog and the cat, if you can see, looking in the fridge and they've thrown out the things that they don't want to eat and they're looking for something to eat, to eat. So funny. Also, of course, the thing about having a dog you find is this, that as they get older in their life, you can do less exercise with them. They can't walk as far, but they still want to eat the same amount of food. That's how it is. Well, as we come to the Old Testament, we find that sin, sin is portrayed like some animal creature. People desire it. They see it. They want it. And so they begin to feed on it. They give in to it. And the more this animal of sin grows and grows, the larger it becomes as they feed on it. Until it becomes like a ravenous, massive beast, monster, which actually turns on them and chases them down. Sin, it seeks after them. There is no escaping from it until they are utterly captured by it and destroyed. Now, for those of us who have chosen to sin, and I imagine that's each one of us, isn't it? There's only two options which exist. Once we've chosen to feed on sin and we've created this monster, there's only two things that can happen. We either have to carry or bear the weight of sin ourselves, and of course there's many in the world who do that. Many in the world who walk around today with shame and guilt that they're carrying, suffering the weight of their actions that they've done in the past that at the moment they're not yet freed from. Or the other option is that we need somebody to carry it for us, somebody to take the burden, the weight of sin from us. The question in Isaiah 53 that is answered is this, how is my sin removed from me? If I can think of one heading or theme over Isaiah chapter 53, this is what it is. How is my sin removed? Now that's an interesting question to the people of the day because we've already seen that Isaiah has proclaimed that they're ungodly, they're wicked. Remember we saw, I think, last time, or the time before, that they're so wicked that they've even offered up human sacrifices. 
How can their sin be taken away? How can a holy God promise to them hope, restoration and peace when they are so sinful? Of course, Isaiah knew it of himself, didn't he? In Isaiah chapter 6, he had this marvellous vision of the Lord and an angel of the Lord came down to him and touched his lips with a burning coal and said to him that his iniquity had been taken, had been covered. But in Isaiah chapter 6, we're not told how that occurs. We're not told who did it, who actually forgave him of his sin. We're given no details, only that it just happened and that was it. Someone covered Isaiah's sin. And throughout the whole book of Isaiah, we're not told any more detail about who that person is. We're reminded again and again, as we saw particularly in those first few chapters, chapters 1 to 39, of how sinful the people are and God's judgment is coming upon them and the wrath of God is being poured out on them. And then through chapter 40, there's hope and there's restoration and there's peace. But we're not told in detail who removes their sin until chapter 53. Chapter 53 answers this question. How is my sin and your sin removed? I began with the end of chapter 52 because it talks about the servant, the servant figure that's predominant within chapter 53. And we've seen this servant figure before. Chapters 42, chapters 49, chapter 50. In an Isaiah, the servant figure can be portrayed in one of three ways. It can be all of Israel, the nation as a whole. It can be a remnant within Israel that is faithful to the Lord. Or it can be one person. In chapter 53, we see it's the one person. The one person. The one person who is without sin and yet bears sin himself. Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13 tells us of this person, this servant. He shall be exalted, lifted up and shall be very high. That same phrase is used of God in Isaiah chapter 6. And then in verses 14 and 15 of Isaiah chapter 52, there is this great contrast. The servant, this person, this figure, of course, that will lead into more detail in Isaiah chapter 53, is humiliated. He is disfigured. He is marred. That word is only used twice in the Hebrew Scriptures. We can't, I think, properly understand what it means for a person's face to be so terribly distorted that they no longer look like a man. I had the terrible thing and happened on Sunday evening, about quarter to ten at night. I heard an almighty crash outside and so quickly rushed downstairs to see what had happened and discovered with a couple of others from the unit block that a car driver had hit a motorcyclist. And the motorcyclist was lying, had been flung off his bike, was on the footpath there and he kept saying, help, help. So somebody phoned an ambulance straight away, a car pulled up, a nurse hopped out, 
she began CPR straight away. And there in front of me, I could see all the colour from his face begin to drain away and he looked grey, stopped speaking. The ambulance arrived, they tried the best he could. They tried for about 15 minutes, I think, to bring him back to life with a defibrillator. But he passed away there on the footpath. Of course, it stayed with me since Sunday night. I keep thinking about that man. Was he married? Did he have children? Uh, today, this morning, there's a, little, a few flowers outside the kindergarten there at Alderley where it happened. But this goes much further. This talks about a person who is so disfigured that they don't even resemble any, any figure of a man that we, I can't even imagine, I can't even think about what that's like. The people will be amazed. Still in Isaiah chapter 52, the people will be amazed at this person. This person who is so marred that this person then ends up being so highly exalted. And Isaiah 52, it you know, contrasts and just swings from one verse to the next. Isaiah writes, the, the nations and the kings will be astonished at the victory of this servant. Whole nations will leap in amazement. Nations will be so surprised at the change in this person that they will marvel in astonishment. They will be startled by his exaltation. That this one who has been so lowly humiliated is now high and lifted up. So much so, Isaiah writes, that kings will shut their mouths. They will see what they have not been told. They will understand what they have not heard. Kaiser puts it this way in his commentary. He says, The mystery of the servant then is just as he shocked humanity by the brutality he experienced in his sufferings, so in a coming day he will shock and startle humanity even more amazingly as their mouths literally hang open when they see him in all his majesty and resplendent glory. Wow. To be shocked at a person who is so disfigured, but to be even more shocked, amazed, marveling, when we shall see Jesus in his glory. So that's the central message of Isaiah 53. How is my sin removed? and the vicarious suffering of the servant that removes it. The chapter begins with a question, who has believed what we have heard? For a long time, Israel had heard the report of the suffering servant. And of course, the majority of the Jews responded with unbelief. Previously, Isaiah had spoken of the arm providing salvation, but had not given us any detail to whose arm that belonged. But now we're told that this arm belongs to the Lord, verse 1. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? But this is not God the Father. It is God the Son, the suffering servant. By his humiliation, we are saved. Verse 2, 
speaks of the humanity of the servant. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. To those hearing these words in this day, they would have understood that the young plant was a tree sucker. Now, I don't know very much about plants. I was with somebody the other day who was rolling off all the Latin names of the flowers all in the garden. But a young sucker is, is a part of a, tr- a plant, a branch which prevents the rest of the tree growing and producing fruit. And the gardener would come along and he would see this young sucker and he would cut it off and he would throw it away so that the rest of the plant could thrive. So here the servant, we're told, he will be broken off. He will be cast aside. He is a root out of dry ground. Similarly, this root doesn't produce anything. And so the gardener comes along, he steps on it, and he crushes this root for the sake of the rest of the plant. This, of course, emphasises the humanity of Jesus, the servant, the Messiah. Descendant of David, he did not come to earth resplendent in glory, wanting others to serve him, but he came as a shepherd. In his outward appearance, Isaiah says, there's there's nothing that we would look upon his face and think, oh, you are the most handsome man we've ever seen. Jesus would just walk through the crowd and people would just turn their face and think he was just a man, just a man. And then the rest of the chapter talks for some part of his suffering is despised and rejected by others. The others here of the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the ones who rejected the Messiah, the ones who others looked up to for spiritual leadership and guidance. And whatever you say and believe, we will believe also because you're our spiritual leaders. And what did they say? Jesus, you're of the devil. Man of sorrows. We'll sing about in just a moment. In fact, the word here is better translated as pains, pains. He would be acquainted with sorrow and grief. Amazing. The one who, who knew so much sorrow and grief spent the majority of his ministry healing others of their sorrow and grief. That the deaf would hear, that the blind would see and that the lame would walk. So intimately acquainted with human frailty, some would hide their faces from him. Not only would people not be drawn to him because he was was not made to be the most handsome man that's ever walked on the face of the earth, but others would hide their faces from him because they were repulsed at his teaching. He taught a strict code of ethics. He said, this is how you must live. Come into the kingdom of God. This is how you are to live. And of course, we read many times, don't we, that many heard his message, Jesus' message, and they walked away. They didn't want to hear anymore. Some rabbis, in my research, I read this, some rabbis even gave Jesus names which translated mean this, may his name and memory be blotted out. He is the hanged one. Some rabbis even taught that Jesus was the illegitimate son of Miriam, 
and a Roman soldier named Pantera. The name Pantera being very similar to the Greek mythological figure Pandora. Of course, we know Pandora's box, right? All the evil of the world come from Pandora's box. And so the rabbis taught Jesus is the source of evil. Verse 4. Well, of course, people would see him suffer and some would say he's suffering because of his own sin. All the bad things that he has done have to be met with some punishment. But it's not his own sin that he receives the punishment for. It's for you and for me. The servant has taken upon himself our sin. The word born here in Leviticus means lifted up carried, taken away. So the servant bears the suffering of the people in the sense of offering himself up to God as a sacrifice. Israel thought that the servant deserved to be treated harshly, to be stricken, to be smitten, to be afflicted by God, meant that God was unhappy with him. He needed to be punished. But Isaiah says it wasn't for his own, it was for us that he was crushed. The same word used in Isaiah 3.15, what do you mean by crushing my people, grinding them into the ground? Psalm 72 verse 4 talks of crushing the oppressor. In the same way our saviour crushed, our servant crushed. He didn't deserve it. But by him being crushed, we experience healing. By him suffering, we receive peace. He receives the wounds and yet we are healed as a consequence of that. Bruises or stripes used in some versions refers to the welts and swellings of the skin due to being beaten or flogged. The servant suffers but releases us of our agony. Everything the servant endures is in payment for our sins and in turn brings healing and wholeness to us. We might ask the question, why? Why does all this go on? Why does all this need to go on? Isaiah says in verse 6, because we're like sheep. If you've been around sheep, you know what? Sheep are dumb. We had sheep at the Bible school. They always used to amaze me. They'd all be pushed up against the fence in the corner there. And then one of them decided they wanted to go for a run. So we'd just take off and then all the others would take off as well. No reason. Just like, well, he's left. Let's all go as well. Isn't it true of us? We've joined with others in ungodly behaviour. We want to be in the in crowd. We... We do our own thing, our own way. We willfully choose what we know what that is wrong. We know we follow the path of the world. And so the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that word laid means to press down to cause suffering. Not just put on, but actually to cause suffering in the process. 
But Jesus never defended himself. He never protested. He never said, this does not belong to me. Get me out of here. Like a sheep, he was silent. Like a lamb being led to the slaughter. Without bleating, Jesus did not open his mouth. The servant suffers. And the suffering leads him to death. Well, then having dealt with the servant's behaviour during his suffering and trials, Isaiah then, again, I want to say, amazing, 800 years before this occurred, he talks about the trial, Jesus' trial himself. Isaiah predicts predicts that the servant will be taken. He'll be held captive. He will undergo a judicial judgment cut off from the land of the living, he will die. The suffering servant will die and his death will be a sacrifice for others, stricken for the transgression of my people. Messiah will take on himself the punishment for the people who do not keep the law so that the people do not need to be punished. To be a Christian, you need to believe this. Jesus died for me, for me. He said that 44% of Australians believe in some kind of God, some supernatural being, but of course we know the percentage to be much lower of those who say and believe Jesus died for me. One author says, you've got to get me into the cross. You've got to see Jesus on the cross. He did it for me. Stricken for the transgression of my people, that word here can all be, also be translated as guilt. And in Leviticus, the word guilt refers to my own feelings of the consequences of what I've done wrong, the punishment that I received because I have done wrong, the sacrifice that I need to make to order to put things right again. But here again, it's the offering of another which makes me right. His grave was with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Jewish law stated that if a person was charged with a criminal offence, they were not allowed to be buried in the family grave, that a special grave had to be made specially for them, a criminal's grave. Crucifixion was a criminal's death. So how can it be that the, the grave of this servant be both the wicked and be buried in a rich man's tomb? Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man, requested the body of Jesus. That request was granted, and so Jesus was laid in his own tomb, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. Joseph of Arimathea was a sinner, yet he was also very wealthy. And in his tomb, meant for himself, the body of Jesus was laid. The servant not guilty of any sin outwardly, no deceit in his mouth, free 
guilt-free, both outwardly and inwardly. That's the second thing you need to be saved. First, first thing is to believe that Jesus died for me and died for my sin. The second thing you need to believe is that he was buried. He was put to death. Real evidence of his death. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. This didn't happen. The death of Jesus didn't happen because some Roman soldiers just decided, oh, let's go and do this. Let's get rid of him. Get, get him out of the world and then we can get on with life. No, we read that this was God's specific plan that the servant be crushed. And it pleased God to do so, not in some a sadistic way, but that, that God's purpose might be fulfilled that the debt of the sinner be paid in full, our debt, your debt, my debt, that the person held captive can now be set free and enjoy that freedom. God put the servant to grief. Or a more literal translation is that he diseased him. Jesus didn't die on the cross because of some personal disease, some cancer or something like that, but that God the Father diseased him. God made him an offering for sin. And being a guilt offering, it means it includes both deliberate and unintentional sin. And then as we come to the end of the chapter, it said these words, how, how the servant can see his seed. Now, how can that be? One who's dead and buried in a tomb is able to say that he will see his seed. He will see those who come, who are born after him. Well, that only occurs if he's raised from the dead. God prolonged the days of the servant beyond death. Every person who's born again, born from anew, John chapter 3, Jesus' words to Nicodemus, is the seed of the servant. You and I adopted into the family of God, co-heirs with Jesus, our brother. And of course, that's the third thing a person needs to believe to be saved. First thing is to know that Jesus died for our sin. Number two, that he was buried. Number three, that he was raised from the dead. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead is the greatest promise I believe in the New Testament, you will be saved. The suffering servant didn't fail in his task. His death was not a failure, but a magnificent triumph accomplishing all that God had purposed. The final, the once for all, the only sacrifice for sin, made and accepted. No other sacrifice is needed, no other sacrifice will be accepted. It's never Jesus plus, it's Jesus only. You and I declared righteous today because we have a saviour who is righteous. The servant who suffers for the sins of others that we might be counted among those for whom he suffered. 
He will be greatly rewarded. He is given the great position. We go back to Isaiah 52 now, don't we? He is lifted up, exalted on high, that the mouths of kings will shut. The mouths of kings will be, their eyes will be in astonishment that the one who has been in such humiliation now is lifted to the highest place, King of kings and Lord of lords, our Saviour. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, it, if we're to be honest, it's hard for us even to contemplate, even to think about what you did for us, what you went through for us. It was all because of us that we might know God, we might know the living God, we might know his spirit within us, we might have a relationship with him who walks with us and talks with us. Jesus risen from the dead. We can know it to be true this day. Lord, if any, any here this morning who have not yet come to faith in Christ, I pray this day is the day of salvation for them where they will say, he died for my sin, he was buried for me and raised from the dead. Jesus, our hearts are full of thanks and in your name we pray, amen. Let's stand together as we respond to what God has been saying to us. Jesus' wonderful love this morning, man of sorrows. Let's stand together. physical table but we say this is the Lord's table everyone everyone is invited to come nobody is left out 
all can come. So we're reminded of the words of Luke chapter 22, where Jesus took a loaf of bread and when he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup after supper saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. So let's take, let's eat the wafer and let's drink the juice. And may all of our thoughts be on Jesus. And Jesus on the path of the past, who died, was buried and rose again for us. So Jesus in the present, who reigns on high and lives within all who believe in him by his spirit and a Jesus of the future who is coming back, coming back. Let's eat and drink together. Jesus, you will never abandon those whom you love. Your promise is sure, I'll never leave you or forsake you. We know that because your spirit lives within us. Every moment of our lives, every thought that we think, every action we do, you are there with us. Lord, our desire is that our lives will be revealing the glory of God in an even greater way that others might come to know Christ in us, the hope of glory. As we sing these last two verses, May they be a reflection of what's in our heart. Let's stand together. Scent of heaven, God's answer. Scent of heaven.
If you don't know this Jesus we've been singing about, praying to and speaking about this morning, come to the front after the service. Come and speak to Pastor Brian, who would love to share with you how you can know Jesus as your Saviour and your Lord. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen and establish you. For to him be the power forever and ever. Amen.